Let's pray real quick before we, before we dive in here. Heavenly Father, you are God over all. And we come before you now, Lord, as an act of worship. We want to apply our minds to your word to understand who you are and understand who we are as a result of being your people. Speak to us, Lord, through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you see this flag right here, how do you feel? Do you feel a special loyalty, a special attachment? Does this flag make you feel something? Does it, evoke, does it make you feel emotional? Does it make you want to weep? Do you feel really happy, excited? How does this flag make you feel? What does it make you think of? Essex. Who said to Essex? Yes, this is the flag of Essex. Essex has a flag. Makes you think of a cricket team. So I didn't get a big reaction. I'm thinking that maybe this doesn't evoke a lot of emotion for many people. It's got some cool knives on it. You'll see this on the doors of the Loughton Library if you go there. What about this flag? This is better? This one, does it make you feel something? You've got a smile on your face? Yeah, it makes you feel something. Three lions, okay, we're starting to think, yeah, why three lions? What, what does that mean, three lions? Makes you think of England, okay, yeah, this is the royal banner of England. It's red with three outstretched lines. And when displayed in a war or battle historically, this signaled that the reigning monarch was there was present. You took this into battle to show that the king, the queen, was there with you. It symbolizes the power of the monarch, and it makes, it, 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 it makes a claim about who is there. It makes a claim about a person. All right, what about this flag? Are we getting warmer? Does this make people feel a bit more, maybe? Does this flag feel a bit more personal? What, which flag is this? England? St. George, George's Cross. Yeah, St. George's Cross. We've got a white flag with a red cross. You often find this being waved to celebrate the national football team or maybe even the cricket team. But apparently it wasn't until the 1990s that English fans began using St. George's Cross to represent the national football team. Up until that point, I understand, it was mostly the, the Union Jack that was used. And in 1996, it became, became a question of identification during the Euros in 1996 when England was grouped with Scotland in the Euros. And all of a sudden, you have British people showing up at the same stadium with the same flag cheering for two different teams. That's not going to work. So England fans, despite their attachment to uh, the Union Jack, felt that it no longer represented them. So you see, in about the 1990s, people more and more associating their sense of patriotism and their association, cheering on, supporting the national football team with the flag of St. George. And perhaps you as well feel more of an attachment to this flag because you feel like you've done battle with it. Now, this coming World Cup, there's going to be a real battle, isn't there? Now, this next flag I've already talked about. Now, you'll notice how this flag transitions into this flag. We've got here the cross of St. Andrew with the cross of St. Patrick with the cross of St. George all mixed together. 
to make what you sometimes call the Union Flag or the Union Jack. And this has become known the world over, mostly as a linguistic association, where people, even in America, Canada, wherever, we go on the internet, and if you need to switch your language on a website, you're going to click on this flag to get your language. But what else does this flag make you think of? For me, having lived here for the last year, it makes me think of the Platinum Jubilee, or Platy-Jubes, as we called it in my house. It makes me think of festivities, of excitement, of celebration. I remember in Thaden Boys seeing it draped, the bunting, little flags draped over the roads in celebration of Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee. And here you see, this is not Thaden Boys. <laughs> this is a different part of the country that you may recognize, creating a festive atmosphere. All right. So how would you say this one makes you feel? We start out with the Essex flag, not a lot of reaction. We built up, and then we're here with the Union Jack. How are we feeling now? Proud. We feel a special affiliation. It might make you feel something. It might make you feel emotional, maybe. Maybe it might make you think of your, of your homeland. Now, let's look here really carefully. What we've got here is an ancient Egyptian military standard. This is from around the time of Moses, and my apologies, maybe I should have flipped it to make it a little bit more uh, visible. It features the head of an Egyptian god on the top and would have been used in battle to identify different divisions within the Egyptian army and let the commanders see where they were on the battlefield. And you'll notice here we've got these cloth, these cute little cloth streamers hanging down. We've got the head of the Egyptian god on a stick, on a pole, and we've got these little streamers coming down. These are what would de later develop into our flags that we know today. Modern day flags come from these little doodads that are hanging on on the bottom there. And this is the original sense of the word standard in English. It's a flag or a figure stuck on a pole to mark out a rallying point in a battle. And as one writer said, with it, you take your stand to either conquer or to die. It was used as a means of identification to show that the king was there, the queen was there, a commander was there. And later in English, we would take this word standard to represent something that issues from an authority, a word that comes from a source of authority. So our word standard today started by referring to these little guys to develop into something that is an authoritative example of something. And historians tell us that as, for as long as people have been going into battle, they've been taking things like this with them into battle. You go down to the British Museum, you find all these old artifacts that people took into battle, and their power was not so much in their utility as an offensive weapon. You're not really going to hit somebody with this. You're not going to attack somebody with it directly, but you take it into battle because of the way it raises morale. It rallies the troops together. It gets people excited. It shows them that something bigger is happening. It rallies the troops. And in battle, in ancient warfare, to lose your standard, there would be a standard bearer who had a very important role of holding this. And to lose one's standard was an utter disgrace and signaled the end of the battle, the defeat. And there's a story that when Julius Caesar first landed on the banks of this glorious island, his legions were too scared to jump out. 
onto the beach. I don't know if it was because of the stones or the whatever, but they were too afraid to jump out. And the first person, Julius Caesar says, to jump out was the standard bearer. And he said, come on, guys, let's go. And then you know the history and the Romans in Britain, etc. In the ancient world, invading armies with banners were so impressive that when they showed up with their standards, it was so impressive that it inspired awe. Thus, we find in Song of Songs, maybe a book we ought to read more in church, we find a comparison of the o- between standards and the overpowering presence of a lover. You, my darling, are as lovely as Jerusalem, awe-inspiring as an army with banners. Who is this who shines like the dawn, as beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awe-inspiring as an army with banners? What about this? I'm not a specialist. I've been into the forest. To me, this looks like a walking stick. And it is indeed an ancient Egyptian walking stick from a museum from the time of Moses. It's a stick. How does it make you feel? Does this inspire confidence? Having looked at all those flags, the Essex flags, you don't just have one stick. You got three on the Essex flag. You got three knives. You got three. How does this make you feel? Is it awe-inspiring? Are people going to write poems about how their lover is so, you know, they're captivated by the beauty of their lover just like looking at a stick? No. It's a stick. Well, this is what Moses went into battle with. In the church's current series, we're looking at phrases in the Bible that use the divine name Yahweh to help describe who God is. So far, we've looked at the Lord as shepherd and the Lord as provider. Today, we're looking at a passage in Exodus that talks about the Lord is my standard. The Lord is my banner, my standard or my banner. So let's go ahead and jump in here into Exodus chapter 17. I'm going to read um, verses 8 through 16. And we find the story of a joker named Amalek who attacks the people of Israel and is defeated. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on either side, So his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a remembrance in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. 
He said, a hand upon the banner of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's our passage in Exodus that we want to explore today. Now, if you were following along in your Bible, you may have noticed some differences from the version I read and the version that you maybe had in front of you. That's because the meaning of some of the words that we find here in Hebrew aren't entirely certain. And what I've adopted this morning for the basis of this talk is the new Revised Standard Version, which has just come out in a new edition. And the reason that I picked it is because it's the most recent English version and probably, hopefully, reflects our best scholarly understanding of this passage. And I think this is a good time to remind ourselves that when we read the Bible, when we read the Old Testament in English or any other language apart from Hebrew, we need to remind ourselves that we're reading the Bible in translation. We are reading one version of it. The word ver version is important because it speaks to the interpretive nature of translation, that translation requires us to interpret, to understand. Just like you'll hear me using the word standard or banner or flag or trying to understand. So let me give you an analogy. A lot of people, it's that time of year, a lot of people going on holiday, going over to France, and when you go on holiday, when I go on holiday, one of the things I love about going on holiday is you find some of the things that you're used to at home, they're on holiday, but in a different version. For example, if I go to buy bread here, I'm going to buy a loaf of bread. I'm going to make a sandwich. I'm going to make toast. It's going to be amazing. When you go to France, the form of bread that you're going to eat is probably a baguette. The version of bread is the baguette, whereas here, the version of bread is a loaf of bread. They're made from the same ingredients, more or less, but interpreted in different ways, if you will. They have a different texture, different feel, different look. They're presented in different ways. So, so it is as well with versions of the Bible. So which one is better, if you really want to know what I think? Well, it depends on how well it's prepared, who's, who baked the bread, and what you want to use it for. If you want to rip off a chunk and dip it in something, go with the baguette. You want to make toast, go with the loaf of bread. With that in mind, let's turn now to situating today's passage within the book of Exodus and the story of God and his people. When we drop into Exodus chapter 17, we find that the people of Israel have finally and successfully exited the land of Egypt, escaping from the power of the king of Egypt, whom we call Pharaoh. From him and his army. Yahweh, the Lord, has given them victory over their oppressors. And the people celebrate this in what we call the Song of the Sea in Exodus 15. They say, I will sing to Yahweh for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is is his name. That's Exodus 15. Walking through the reed sea as on dry ground, Moses leads the people on into the wilderness. The people of Israel continue their trek stage by stage at the Lord's direction, at the Lord's leading as he commands them to move on. But this wilderness journey is not without difficulty. Not too long after leaving Egypt, the people start to grumble. They're no longer enslaved to the king of Egypt, 
but they run into problems with basic necessities. When they find water, it's too bitter to drink. Then they have a hunger problem, and then another water problem where they have nothing to drink. Until now, they've just had problem after problem, and now we find that they have a passage problem traveling through the wilderness. Here, the wilderness dwellers, the semi-nomadic people of Amalek, come out and attack them. Even if all of this was to serve to educate God's people in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, it kind of reads like one of those post-apocalyptic thrillers, right? Like, how are they going to survive? They're going through. They're just trying to find their way, something to eat, something to drink, somewhere to sleep throughout the wilderness. It's a story of survival. And as we approach today's passage, a question from the previous section still lingers in the air. Just previously, when the people were thirsty, they quarreled with Moses, demanding something to drink. They tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? That's just at the end, in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 17. This question is lingering in the air as they go into battle, as they're attacked in the wilderness. Is the Lord really among us or not? When crisis erupts, when catastrophe strikes... This may be one of the first questions that we ask as well. Where is the Lord in all this? Why is this happening to me? Brothers and sisters, human history is full of events that are a mysterious confluence of divine energy and human endeavor mingled together in the most inscrutable of ways. It's hard to figure it out. In the face of life's challenges, we too quickly forget how the Lord has sustained us and others over the years. These people were just dancing and celebrating. You know, after the Song of the Sea, there's the Song of Miriam, where she gets all the ladies together. They're dancing and they're cheering and they're doing their song and all this stuff, their song and dance. How quickly we forget. It's important that we read stories like this, that we talk to one another, that we remind ourselves of the Lord's great deeds and his goodness, so that when the crises hit... We're leaning on the Lord. We're rallying around the Lord as our banner. Not left asking, is he really among us? So for the people of Israel, an attack at the hands of the people of Amalek shouldn't really be altogether surprising. If you're out traveling across the wilderness, out in the bush, in the desert, you know, other people are out there too. And really, strife with this tribe stems all the way back from the father of these two nations, the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, Esau being the grandfather of Amalek. The, um, the Amalekites were a tribe of people descended from Esau and who inhabited this southern part of the land through which the people of Israel were now traveling. In the Bible, we see multiple times that the Amalekites are hell-bent on thwarting God's purposes God's purposes all throughout their journey through the wilderness, all the way up until they establish their king. Journeying across the wilderness, Israel is in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position. When this event is recounted later in Deuteronomy, Moses adds in a surprising detail that causes us to recoil, recoil even more. We know that Moses hasn't forgotten this battle because in his farewell address to the people, he takes one last step. He says, 
In Deuteronomy 25, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance. Blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Don't forget it. So we learn this surprising detail that's not mentioned in Exodus that actually these jokers are rolling up the tired, the weak, the weary, people who are less able to walk, who are lingering behind. You can imagine this long caravan across the desert. They're showing up and they're just striking people down, taking their goodies. Not cool, Amalek. In this painting, we see Moses, Aaron, and Hor. The name of this painting, the title is Victory, O Lord. Now, if I asked you to paint me a picture under the title, Victory, O Lord, would you paint something like this? Is this the title that you would give to this picture, or is this what you would paint under this title? Not me. I'd probably give this a title like, Go Take a Nap, Grandpa. <laughs> Moses is weary. He's worn out. He's flagging. He needs to go take a nap. He's being held up, his arms stretched out. He's clinging to his stick, the walking stick that we saw, his standard, his banner. In verse 9, we get the impression that Moses is perhaps too old, too weak, already from the beginning of the story, because he's asking Joshua, who up to this point is unknown, he's saying, Joshua, you've got to go round up some boys, and we've got to go fight these guys. In all this, we see that Moses... What matters about Moses is that he is faithful. He is not self-sufficient. He's not relying on himself to take on the enemy who would try to thwart God's purposes. He needs helpers, so he asks for help. And I think this is one of the takeaways of the passage. God's people need not fear anyone who opposes God. Fulfillment of God's promises and plans depend not on our own ability to endure, not on our own stamina, but on God himself, on Yahweh himself. Moses' weakness serves to highlight that the victory is the Lord's. They had to get a rock for Moses to sit on. What kind of warrior is that? He's not down in the battle with the staff. He's up on the hill. In the painting, Moses is clinging to his staff. We first find the staff of God in Exodus chapter 4 when Moses is commissioned to confront Pharaoh and set God's people free. By the time we get to Exodus 17, the Lord through Moses and Aaron has already done a series of miracles with this staff, the rod of God, if you want to make it rhyme. He's turned it into a snake. With it, he turned the Nile into blood. He caused frogs to come up out of the rivers, the canals, and the ponds when he stretched the staff over them. He turned the dust into gnats after he hit the ground. He brought thunder, lightning, and hail. He divided the reed sea so that people could walk across on dry land. He caused water to gush out of a rock, all with this walking stick. This represents, this symbolizes God's power. It's not God. It's not God's presence. 
It's a symbol it represents. It's with the staff that the Lord had said, here is how you will know that I am the Lord. He didn't say, this is how you will know me, the Lord. He didn't say, worship this staff because this is an image of me. He said, by this staff, you will know that I am the Lord. Now, simply holding up the staff had previously brought victory. It's as if here, the Lord, through Joshua, was the one striking the enemy with the blade of the sword, even though the staff is up on a hill far from the battle. In his first encounter with the staff of God, when God turned the the staff into a snake, if you remember in Exodus chapter 4, Moses ran from it. I probably would too. Now, where Moses was previously afraid of what God was doing through his power, after witnessing God's miracles, Moses came to a place where he could trust the Lord. And it's no longer Moses who is afraid and is fleeing from the staff of God from the rod of God, but with it he puts to flight the Amalekites who didn't fear God. When we get to verse 11, we see this problem of holding up hands, and the Hebrew text here is really interesting. Is he holding up one hand, two hands? Are they going up at the same time? Are they going down? Are they alternating? Are we holding them up? There's a lot of questions about what's happening with Moses' hands in this passage, and people have long speculated that Moses is up there praying. Because you know the posture of prayer is often extending your hands for a blessing or receiving from the Lord or praying for something. Others have suggested that maybe Moses is up there acting like a sort of enchanter, a magician, kind of playing Harry Potter up on the hill. Wingardi Leviosa. Whatever his role, his hands play a key role in the story. It's as if He's channeling God's power in some mysterious way. I'm not going to say that he's not praying, because if you're up there all day watching the battle from a distance, you're going to be talking, and you're probably going to be talking to God, and I would consider talking to God prayer. So let's say he was praying a little bit. Now, in prayer, as in Israel's defeat, something inexplicable is taking place to bring about victory, a win that is ultimately attributed to the Lord, not Moses. The battle is not fought as we might expect it. At least that's not how the battle is retold. The details of the battle, how it happened, what's happening with the hands, all these details are left out because they become terribly unimportant and uninteresting when we consider that it's invisible, divine intervention that is giving the people of God the victory. When we arrive in verse 15, we see Moses setting up an altar. An altar was a place to offer animal sacrifices, most often made out of stone. It was a way to commemorate, to remember an event, to thank the Lord for victory. And in this case, Moses set it up, perhaps to offer sacrifices. We don't know. doesn't tell us. But as a way to give thanks and to recognize the Lord's role in this event. I was recently at Canterbury Cathedral, which I was surprised to find contains so many altars. There's, of course, the high altar towards the back, but there's all these little chapels with all these little altars, and there are signs up inviting you to write your prayers down on pieces of paper and put them on these altars, to leave them there. 
And me, as one of the many thousands, millions of pilgrims who've traveled to Canterbury and gone through the cathedral over the years, I found that seeing these altars, being in this big cathedral, kind of inspired something of faith within me. These chapels, these different parts of the church were named after saints who preceded us in the faith, who found trusting God to be important. So it inspired me as well to have my faith renewed. It renewed my faith to offer prayers to God in confidence that he hears us. Remembering is, in fact, a powerful element of our faith. And that's what I appreciate about EFCC, is the way that you regularly hear people stand up bearing witness to God's faithfulness, erecting, if you will, verbal altars to the Lord, commemorating things. Hey, I was in this, that, and the other. The Lord brought me out. That is you raising a banner, saying, the Lord did this. It's important that we build those altars, even if it's just with our words, to inspire faith in others, to remind ourselves, God did this. I was previously like this. God brought me here. These are powerful stories that inspire confidence in God's transformative power. When we get to verse 15, kind of the crux of the passage, we find this name, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my standard. Now, normally in Christianity, names don't have a sort of mystic power that you can just mutter names without your mind or your heart working. But we draw on these names, these phrases, because we have become sons and daughters of God. We are confessing with our mouth what the Holy Spirit has brought us to believe in our hearts, that Jesus is Lord. It's not mystic power in uttering the, Lord, the words, the Lord is my banner, the Lord is my standard. The power is in the person, not the words. My hope is in Yahweh my banner, not in the words Yahweh is my banner, if you get what I mean. These names reveal aspects of his personality. They're not to be used as charms or hexes or magical words. They're not keys to personal power in my life. The power is not in the words, but the person. The emphasis in the Bible is always on knowing God. The more that you know who God is and how he operates in the more world, the more you will trust him. Here, the banner represents victory. Given what we know about ancient warfare, it is not unreasonable to think that the Amalekite army would have confronted the people of Israel with battle banners raised high. And even if they weren't fully regimented into different companies, they may have at least had a standard representing the God under whose protection they waged war, a bit like this ancient Egyptian one. People of this time believed that the gods accompanied them into battle when they took their standards with them. For example, you find an Assyrian king who boasts, he says, with the exalted might of the divine standard which goes before me and with the fierce weapons of my God, I fought and defeated them. He's attributing his victory to his God through use of the standard. In contrast to this, what was Israel's standard? What was Israel's banner? Moses claims Yahweh, the invisible God, as his banner. As we read in Hebrews 11, by faith, 
Moses left Egypt behind, not being afraid of Pharaoh's anger. He persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Moses extends his eyes toward the one he sees with the eyes of faith, the one whom he'd seen work wonders in Egypt. Moses doesn't simply trust himself. He doesn't just trust the rod of God, the staff. He, leading the people out of Egypt, has taught him that it's Yahweh who is the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. As in the words of Psalm 44, you are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you, we drive back our foes. Through your name, we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow, and my sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our foes, and let those, and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. Selah. Psalm 44. So what we have in verse 16 is a rallying cry. What we have is Moses calling to the people of Israel, a hand upon the banner of the Lord. Yahweh is the battle standard under which the people of Israel rally. To rally is to bring people back together for a specific purpose. It's to gather in, a re gather in response to a call, to renew one's courage, and ultimately to return to the site of conflict. At the end of the battle, the victory is attributed to God. An altar is built in his honor to commemorate the event. How can this be when we haven't witnessed the direct intervention of the Lord in the battle? This reminds me a bit of the story of Esther, where God is mysteriously absent. Or is he? In the midst of human endeavor, God is at work, even when you don't see him. Which reminds me of a saying hustle, pray, eat, the human endeavor, relying on God and enjoying God. It's interesting that monuments from this era depict pharaohs conquering their enemies with one hand on the head of their enemies. You can see this at the British Museum. One hand on the head of their enemies and the other hand is raised up in, high in the air like this. As if to say, by my own strength did I conquer. But in Moses' hand, we find the staff to say, I'm not relying on my strength, but I'm relying on Yahweh who gives me victory. So in closing, where do we go with all this? What do we make of this story for today? I'd like to suggest that everyone has a banner. Christians, non-Christians alike, no matter who you are, as we say in West Virginia, no matter who you are, Everyone has a personal narrative, a personal story that you live under, a, a story that you tell yourself. What's your story? What's your banner that you live, the shadow of which you live under? Who is your banner? Moses recognized that the Lord was present with them in the battle. He was the one who gave the victory. It wasn't his own doing. It was, in some mysterious way, the planning in the battle, the Lord was at work, even if he was not physically present in the battle itself. Moses took divine action, definitive action calling for help. So for us today as Christians, the Lord is still our banner. Not something else, not someone else. If the Lord is our banner, our rallying point, then we, the church, come together across boundaries, ethnic, linguistic, political, social, class, and so on. 
Across the world, there are those who are God's people who don't look or talk or act or believe exactly like you or I do. To rally around the Lord as our banner means to find unity in diversity, not to seek uniformity, but to seek unity, not to seek to be the same, but to have the same Savior. The true standardization of the human being is to be united to Christ by faith. After that, each one is to seek to please God with every ounce of their being. No part of who I am is to be excluded from coming, coming under the Lord's banner. He is my standard. He is our standard. My thoughts, my feelings, my desires, my orientations, my inclinations, my plans, my actions all come under the king's commands. And when each of, the, when each of us does this, when we rally under his banner and submit to his direction, we find like-minded brothers and sisters who are not looking out for their own well-being, but for the well-being of one another. We are united under the common confession of the Lord is our banner. When we think of the Lord as our banner, we think of him as the one to whom we look. He is with me for better or for worse. From him I take my cues. He is where I seek my refuge. He is my rallying point. He is my reset. He is the one on whom my eyes are fixed. The people around me who don't fear the Lord, they have their standards, their banners. And you can see them waving at Glastonbury. I have Yahweh, my God, as my banner. He's not an, a mystical, impersonal power, but he's God in three persons. Is the staff in my hand my banner? No. The Lord is my banner. Everything about Yahweh as a banner, as a standard, comes to fulfillment in Christ. We started this by looking at some flags. One flag that's been popular in recent times is this one. Somebody tell me which flag we're looking at here. Ukraine. I was watching some videos on iPlayer of Glastonbury. And what do you see in the crowds? You see people with their flags hoisted high. Says something about who they are, right? They're making a statement by having their flag. There's this one that says in the, on the bottom here, it's kind of, the text is reversed, but it says, dance for Ukraine. In recent times, manufacturers of flags have been selling out of Ukrainian flags because of the way they make people feel. There's been a rally around the flag of Ukraine. It's been amazing to see people mobilized. In Cambridge, one couple even painted their house colors of the Ukrainian flag. Why did they do this? They had a friend in Ukraine that they were trying to get out of Ukraine to come stay with them in Cambridge. Can you imagine what it would be like for the whole world to come together under the Lord's banner? To be rallied around the Lord as banner in the same way that we've seen the, the, the world rally around the Ukrainian flag. To have a show of solidarity unlike the world has ever known. If Christians would come together under the Lord's banner with a modicum of the same solidarity and enthusiasm. If this is what humans can accomplish for human causes, how much more are we capable of when we rally around the Lord's banner? Can you imagine stand with Ukraine 
but with a fervor that never dies. Our fervor for the Ukrainian cause has, it would seem, started to lose momentum. Wars drag on. Other concerns, our, our collective enthusiasm starts to wane. Human casualties start to become statistics. We grow more concerned about effects on the global economy and the rising cost of living and fuel prices than we do an invading army. We are, in fact, fickle creatures, aren't we? Living more for the instant dopamine hits of seeing that notification pop up on my phone than I am for having a fervor for the Lord's banner. How does our rallying cry of the Lord is my banner fare in the face of such odds where we're used to getting such hits of dopamine? Oh, brothers and sisters, let us not grow weary championing the cause of Christ, raising his banner. That couple in Cambridge hoped against hope. They painted their house hoping for their friend to make it from Ukraine. And then, so that was in March, I think they painted their house. Then in May, their friend joined them. And I love this picture. Their house painted as the flag shows hope. In this picture, we see them hugging. We see hope requited. They rallied around a cause. They rallied around a banner. And it resulted in human affection. It resulted in peace, security, at least for this family, at, me, at least for now, despite what continues to go on. Brothers and sisters, may we all become enraptured with the Lord as our banner, with a fervor that never fades. May we have a fervor that leads us to be agents of peace and righteousness, truly the salt of the earth for the life of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are God over all. In Christ, you raised a banner, a banner of salvation, inviting all to come to you. Christ was hoisted high on a stick on a hill so that people could behold him from a distance. Crucified as a common criminal, you resurrected him as the Son of God. You demonstrated your salvation through weakness, both through Moses and on the cross. You descended into the belly of the earth at your death. Jesus, you rose from the dead to show that death has, has no grip on you. You rose from the grave and you, you went forth. You showed yourself. You poured out your Holy Spirit so that we would be those who go forth empowered by your Spirit to raise your banner your banner of salvation, your banner of love. Lord, would you help us to rally around you as our center point, to look to you for guidance, that you would be our standard in every decision, every feeling, every thought, that you would be the standard, that our eyes would be firmly fixed on you. Oh Lord, we bless your name for all these mysteries that we've just read about. And we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.